Previously on Valley 101, Phillips said that World War II would change Arizona in a variety of ways. America had emerged from World War II with surging prosperity. People felt free to search for a better life. Veterans who had been stationed at the Sun Belt now moved their young families to these sunny climates. Phoenix's population had been around 60,000 people in 1940. By 1950, it was more than 300,000 people. If you're looking at the biggest cities in the U.S. by population, in 1940, Phoenix was ranked 198th. By 1950, we were 99th. We moved up 100 spots in a decade. And once Phoenix started growing, it really didn't stop. Welcome back to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Last week, we explored the historic growth of the Valley. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I'd recommend it. But if you're up to speed, well, let's keep going. For part two in our series on Phoenix's population, we're looking into the future. Katie O'Connell is back on deck for the episode. Katie, what do you have in store for us today? Hey, Kayla. For this episode, I'll dive into just how big we're expected to get. From there, we're gonna take a look at what that growing number means, and we're gonna look at our economy, housing, transportation, and the environment. Just a quick preface, I did not consult a crystal ball in the making of this week's episode, which is to say, everything you're about to hear is based on data, but it's subject to change. There's no clear, definitive way to predict the future. So crystal ball caveat aside, let's dive into the data. Our projected population for Maricopa County in 2020 is 4.4 million people. We're on track to gain 2 million more people by 2055. That's 6.4 million people in Maricopa County. That kind of gain is a little hard to picture. So imagine Denver. That area is about 2 million people. Now add Denver to the Valley by 2055. And that's what we're on track for. Different parts of the Valley will develop in different ways. You heard from Scott Wilkin in last week's episode. He's the Senior Project Planning Manager at the Maricopa Association of Governments. While Phoenix's density will keep developing, Scott says that there are going to be huge population and employment gains in the West Valley. And then here's 2050. And now we've got um, the West Valley, which is geographically bigger than the rest of Maricopa County combined, has a higher share of population than Phoenix and the East Valley. The East Valley will keep getting denser and might even start spreading south. A corridor could develop connecting the Santan Valley down to Florence and Pinal County. These numbers are mind-blowing to look at. That is a a crazy number of people. But what does this growth mean for life in the valley? One of the biggest factors driving growth in the valley has to do with the employment opportunities here. So that's going to be the first thing we examine. In the second quarter of this year, the United States economy grew at the amazing rate of 4.1%. 
To find out more about the growth of the Valley's economy, I talked to Chris Camacho. He's the president and CEO for the Greater Phoenix Economic Council. Yeah, Greater Phoenix Economic Council, or GPEC, has been known for over 30 years in supporting companies as they're analyzing the Greater Phoenix market for investment. So we recruit domestic and international firms that are evaluating West Coast locations to create high-wage jobs for citizens here in Metro Phoenix. In the last episode, we talked about the concerted effort to diversify our workforce after the 2008 recession. That effort has literally paid off. Well, last year's year-over-year GDP growth was over 4%, which is really off the charts. And looking at other uh, regional economies, we're outperforming most across the United States. A lot of that growth is in the healthcare and biomedical fields. We've also seen a lot of growth in the financial sector. Chris said that we're also flirting with a lot of rising technology companies, like blockchain companies, cybersecurity companies, and autonomous vehicles. I asked Chris why businesses were moving to the Valley. Part of it has to do with our education system. We're producing talent that meets the needs of industry, and that is uh, today what is paramount for site selection. And notwithstanding the fact that we're a clean, modern, young, kind of hip region, people like moving here. Um, We're next door to California, which is going in a different direction uh, on the policy front and tax side. So it's all these ingredients combined. It's not one silver or a bullet solution, but it's a lot of different ingredients. That's why we're seeing this kind of growth that we're experiencing. And Chris said that combination of different ingredients should help us bring the necessary jobs for our growing population. If we're going to have two million more people come to our area, they'll need a place to live. That brings us to our next chapter, housing. For first time buyers, Catherine, in Metro Phoenix, highly competitive. Uh, I I see houses disappear in 48 hours from the MLS. Mark Stapp is a real estate expert who teaches at Arizona State University. He's the one who gave me the analogy about Denver. I interviewed him recently outside of Songbird Coffee and Tea House in Phoenix. I asked Mark to describe the current housing situation in the Valley, and he came up with two words, very constrained. Um, I think that we are building at about equilibrium. So when you look at our population growth and you look at the number of housing units that are being added to the market each year, we're just about meeting our demand with uh, a new supply and that causes problems because we have such a small supply of existing homes on the marketplace. Um, There is not a lot of flexibility in the market and that has been one of the reasons why uh, prices have continually been pushed up. Not the only reason, but one of them. For a long time, Arizona was known for its affordable housing. But this year, we're the third worst state in the nation for affordable housing. Mark said there are two major consequences to this lack of affordable housing. One of those is the the concern for our ability to uh, create a resilient, um, supportive environment for all of our residents. And so more of a social concern. The other is a business concern. And I think 
from a pure business and economic perspective, this is equally important problem to focus on because it affects the ability of employers to attract employees, to attract the sufficient size employment pool at all levels of uh, employment need and ensure that they uh, have a place to live and they can meet all of their other needs. I asked Mark what was being done to address this. Right now the answer is not much, but he pointed out that people have only been talking about this for six to eight months. And policy decisions, for better or worse, take time to arrive. But as we look at the ways the valley is growing, there's a chance for us to grow affordably. Phoenix is a young city, and the valley was built around the car. That means its population and employment bases are spread out. So as our population nodes in downtown Gilbert and downtown Mesa continue to grow, we could see more affordable options rise. This development pattern allows us to continue to grow and at least have the opportunity to maintain affordability. It's a matter of connecting these nodes in employment centers through quality, reliable transportation and making sure that those nodes have services that support the surrounding populations. That's the perfect segue into our next topic, transportation. For some people, it's a quick light rail ride to work. For others, it's hopping into their cars and beating traffic. See, nobody likes sitting in traffic, right? Who wants to do that? Well, now we know which cities are the worst when it comes to congestions on the roadway. To find out more about what our population means for transportation, I met up with Audra Kester-Thomas from MAG. I'm transportation planning program manager. I've been at MAG uh, for almost four years. Her team takes population data and comes up with transportation options. Where are people going to live? Where are they going to work? And how are they going to get between the two? Right now, the maintenance and construction of our transportation system is funded in part by Proposition 400. It's a half-cent sales tax collection that was started in the 1980s and renewed in the early 2000s. It ends December 31st, 2025. Audra's team is currently doing studies to see how the money should be spent if the sales tax is extended past that time. But looking at the next 20 years, um, we'll have more than just the freeways, not only to expand, but to take care of and maintain. And that's some of the conversations and questions we're gonna have to have, because there's a finite amount of resources, but a, a decent amount of need. And our policymakers are gonna have to make some decisions on where they want to place and or invest funding um, to meet the goals. One of the biggest things policymakers will have to decide is how much money is spent on freeway expansion and maintenance versus high capacity projects like commuter rails. This is an especially important discussion as we consider how far out areas like the West Valley or the Santan Valley are going to be developed. However, it doesn't come cheap. Um, and I think that's one of the big trade-offs associated um, with this portfolio of projects for which our, our policymakers will have to make considerations on. 
but the large price tag associated with developing mass transit isn't necessarily a deal breaker. I asked Audra what transportation might look like in 2030, and the quick answer is, for a city that was built around a car, we'll have more options moving forward. So in 2030, what I would hope for is that we have successfully enabled a continuation of our local sales tax, um, that with our partners um, have been able to deliver and continue to commit to delivering a suite of high capacity transportation options um, that range from freeway and uh, road centric um, interests to transit and high capacity transit options, as well as active transportation, which includes considerations for bicycle and pedestrian movements. At this point, we've covered employment, housing, and transportation. That leaves us with one other factor to consider, our environment, specifically our water. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I, I, move, I move that the House suspend the rules and pass the bill, H.R. 2030. The clerk will report the title of the bill. H.R. 2030, a bill to direct the Secretary of the Interior to execute and carry out agreements concerning Colorado River drought contingency management and operations and for other purposes. Catherine Sorensen is the director of the Phoenix Water Services. She said that the valley uses less water than it did in the 70s, even though our population has grown since then. Part of it has to do with the rise of xeriscaping, but a bigger reason has to do with the housing developments that have sprung up around Phoenix. Those developments use less water than the farmland they replace. So we always say that it takes less water to grow a subdivision than it does to grow cotton, for example. The planners on Catherine's team forecast the city's water usage over the next 50 years. They examine things like how much water we're using today and what might influence the number moving forward. Will things like washing machines and toilets become more efficient? They also look at land use and population density. With the, the next generation coming up, the millennials, you know, they want to live downtown and they want to live in high rises and they want to live in these very dense communities. Well, that's great for us um, because dense communities, dense housing uh, you are far more efficient in terms of water use than your traditional, you know, single family home on one third of an acre. Phoenix gets 40 percent of its water from the Colorado River, but the river's reservoirs are really low thanks to drought, overuse of the water, and the effects of climate change. We've been through 20 years of drought. Um, we expect that that will continue. So um, yeah, if we don't address the overallocation of the Colorado River, if our hydrology continues to be dry, then yeah, absolutely, we can drive to worst case scenarios. Arizona, along with six other Western states, just negotiated a drought contingency plan. Congress passed that plan last week. It's designed to prevent the levels of Lake Mead and Lake Powell, the river's largest reservoirs, from falling to critical lows between now and 2026. If a shortage is declared, the amount of the Colorado River water that's delivered to Arizona would decrease by 18%. Separate from this drought plan, Phoenix officials are working on long-term plans to build infrastructure that will enable the city to lessen its reliance on the Colorado River. 
Phoenix and other cities in central Arizona have been banking water underground in aquifers. They've been doing this for years by routing Colorado River water to groundwater replenishment ponds. Much of North Phoenix now depends entirely on Colorado River water. The city plans to drill about 20 new wells and build water mains and pump stations to bring in water from the areas that rely on the Salt and Verde rivers. Right now the city of Phoenix is really pursuing a strategy of um, diversifying its infrastructure to make sure that we can move alternative supplies everywhere they need to go uh, to make sure that we are able to meet demands across our 540 square mile service territory no matter what comes. Hey, Kayla again. Thanks for walking us through that, Katie. It's hard to know what the future will look like. How did you feel as you were reporting on this episode? Thinking about this kind of growth can be really overwhelming. We just looked at what this kind of growth could mean in four different areas, employment, housing, transportation, and water. But that's just scratching the surface, and there are so many what ifs. What if we have to start using our aquifers? What comes next after that? Between this and the last episode, you interviewed what, like seven people? Yeah, it was a little hard to pack all of this information in. You you got it though, but I'm curious, what's something one of them said that stands out to you, like you're still thinking about it? Philip Vandermeer is the historian I spoke to in the last episode. I asked him what lessons he'd most want us to remember from our past as we continue to grow. And he said that Phoenix is most successful when we plan not just for one facet of our community, like our economy, but when we have a big picture vision of the kind of place we want to live. Planning for not just two more firms that can bring in jobs, but creating a metropolitan area that is broadly attractive, that is reasonably sensitive to the environment that isn't thinking just about sprawl, but is thinking about um, the valley as a, as a unique uh, environment. That's the kind of planning uh, that will make this place successful. Well, three cheers to our future. Thank you for that roundup, and thank you all for listening in. We know we covered a lot of ground today, so again, if you've got other questions about our population, ask them. We want to hear. You can send them to us at valley101podcast.azcentral.com or you can reach out to us on Twitter at valley101pod. If you haven't already, I would love if you left us a rating. It helps other people find the show. So please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. All right, catch you next week.